Yeah. If Neil starts drinking coffee, he's just going to go buy the packets. <laughs> if Neil starts drinking coffee, uh, kids just see the, his uh, odd oh, running times. His marathon times will go down. This is great. I love it. <laughs> Give me more. Forget that water. <laughs> Welcome to the Archispeak Podcast, the podcast for architects by architects, where we discuss all things about architecture. I'm Neil Pan. Each episode, Evan Troxel, Cormac Phelan, and me invite you in on the conversation as we talk about everything in the profession, both the good and the bad. Maybe you're considering a career in architecture, you're still in school, or you've been around the block more times than you'd like to admit. Join us in the studio as we gather around the water cooler and talk about this profession we call architecture. It's time for some Archispeak. Welcome to episode 65 of the Archispeak podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxel. And I'm Cormac Phelan. And this episode of Arcaspeak is sponsored by ArcCat. Visit them at arcat.com. And we're also sponsored by Architect Exam Prep. Help yourself pass the ARE by visiting our Pass the Architects Registration Exam page at arcaspeakpodcast.com slash ARE. And use the link there to purchase your study guides. And so for this episode, we've got a few different topics that we wanted to cover so this is going to be a little more rapid fire. Some things that uh, some listeners have given us over over uh, some time, and we, we want to revisit some and, and talk about them. And then a couple we've had on our own list uh, for a little while that wouldn't really uh, fill an entire episode, uh, but we wanted to, uh, to touch on. And I think that first topic has been on our list a long time, and I'm really curious what you guys have to say about this. Uh, and the title was... The importance of coffee. The key ingredient to starting every day. Doesn't it just speak for itself? Yeah. No, it doesn't speak for itself. Of coffee. <laughs> oh, see, get your arrows ready, guys. Get ready and let I, everybody know. Admit I, it. I, I'll just, admit it. This is, uh, you know, this, is, this will feel good, uh, you know, kind of uh, cathartic sort of uh, thing here. I, I don't drink coffee. I never have. Never. <sighs> never. I never. You have. know, I didn't start until I was thirty-five. Really? I think so. Yeah. So just like you know, wow. last week or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is babies. Yeah, I know. I never, never drank coffee in college, and uh, I lived off of soda to my. Oh, okay. So to my well, detriment. Yeah. All right. So it was the the soda addiction. Yep. I didn't have that in college either. I, I did. I, and I mean, I would have the. I would have a soda. Yeah. I mean, I, but I. I wasn't the guy that had like the whole wall of his, next to his uh, um, his his desk, you know, in in lab, uh, full of coffee cans, all kind of like hot glued together or something. So or, or not so, soda cans, yeah, soda cans, all hot glued together. Didn't did, did somebody in your school ever do something like that? Yeah. I know I've made, seen that. Made chairs. We made chairs. Made chairs. Oh, yeah. okay. Lightweight, yeah. recyclable. It's nice. Absolutely. Forward yeah. thinking. We, uh, my, uh, coffee addiction started, I mean, my dad drank black coffee 
every day, all day, and he'd basically brew a pot and then turn it off, and either it would start off hot to cold. <laughs> Didn't understand how he could do that. And then my grandma actually taught me how to drink coffee with heavy cream, heavy sugar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, So not really coffee, more like... Uh, Cream and sugar more, yeah. with with it's a little coffee flavor. A caffeinated it's, beverage. <laughs> well, I I uh, I um, elevated it to cafe au lait. All right. And then it was really the army that pulling guard duty during Desert Storm. I needed my coffee, drank coffee a lot, and then that was pretty much it. Haven't looked back. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, people shooting at me. Yeah. <laughs> I replaced soda with coffee. So I gave up. I haven't had soda in five years, so I've been drinking coffee for five years. But I've gotten to the point now where I don't need any sugar in my coffee. So Speaking Whoa, of soda, I'm, sugar. I'm about five months clean. Really? I haven't, nice. I haven't had soda in a long time, in five months. And my wife and I both kicked it, and we were like, I don't even really want it. You don't miss it. Yeah. No. It takes well, a while to get to that sort, point. Sort of. I think it takes a while sort. to get to that point, but. Yeah. I see that, you know, that good Diet Coke uh, commercial. I'm like, mm. Oh, that stuff will kill you. Jeez. I know. And it was. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, I'm, coffee is important. Uh, cold brew, hot brew, doesn't matter. I'm I'm yeah. curious what our listeners, what what's your favorite? Uh, I'm sure we have some coffee snobs. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. So sure. so let us know. Leave us a message on the on the website or or, uh, or something. Let, let us know what, uh, what what your favorite coffee is and how you like to... How you like to have it? Yeah. What what coffee proprietors are you making filthy rich? Oh yeah, exactly. Are you know like Starbucks or Pete's or yeah, um, Intelligentsia, Blue Bottle. There's all kinds of great ones out here. Caribou. Yeah. All right. So write in and let us know. We're we're, we're Speak is curious. What is your coffee addiction? So you, you can know? make a really good coffee out of a really cheap coffee with with oh yeah good yeah. cold brew method or whatever. But my wife turned me on to the heavy whipping cream, the manufacturing cream in the coffee, and that mm. that is the best. All right. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Before we leave this topic, guys, how <laughs> do you make your coffee? I use an AeroPress. I think I I use. Uh, I think that was, that, a, that was a gift. A gift. Idea. Yeah, that yeah. was a gift idea for one yeah. of our gift shows. But the AeroPress is great. But the the better way to do it now, I think. I mean, that's great for one single cup if you've got some beans or or whatever. But we do a cold brew in a in a pitcher, and we you let it sit out for about twelve hours. You just let it. I don't remember what the exact mix is, and then you strain it, and then you've got like this coffee concentrate, and then we just you know you have a little bit like a quarter cup makes a full cup of coffee because it's really concentrated. It'll go right through you if you if you drink it too too stiff. But um, it's really, it's not acidic, not bitter, really good way to make coffee. So Wow. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm old school blue collar. I'm Mr. Coffee Drip. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got like a... I have a Mr. Coffee Mr. Drip. Coffee, yeah. That's right. My dad had one. It, if it wasn't too good for my dad, it's not too good for me. They still make those things, like Mr. Coffee Damn coffee right makers. They do. Oh, hey, all right. Hey, you're t- remember you're talking to the non-coffee drinker here, so I don't right, know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If Neil starts drinking coffee, he's just going to go buy the packets. <laughs> <laughs> if Neil starts drinking coffee, uh, kids just see the his uh, odd you, running times. His marathon times will go down. This is great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Give me more. Forget that water. <laughs> <laughs> uh i hey you know there's caffeine in uh when i do my my long runs um i use the 
I use several different um, energy and and food supplements, and they all have caffeine in them. And in fact, I buy the ones that say, you know, two x caffeine or something because it, it is it helps you double you know, shot. Yeah, it's it it definitely helps you, but it's not drinking coffee, but it has the the caffeine in it. So um, so it's not that I'm ca- caffeine averse. Uh, it's just I don't care for the taste of coffee, and I never never acquired it. So um, anyway, if you have you know your favorite way to make it, or your favorite coffee, or your favorite outlet to get your coffee, let us know. We're curious. Share it with the with everybody. Another topic that we uh, or that, that I brought up, and this is actually spurred on by another conversation a, a while back uh, between a few other architects, uh, is talking about uh, what fonts or what typefaces do you like to use on your drawings or should you use? I mean, there's, there seems to be, uh, I mean, years ago, right? I mean, how about we, just should not use? Oh, the, hey. No, no. Let's just all agree that we all know that Comic Sans is the, is the business. It's it. It's, it's what we should. <laughs> <laughs> you get, you know what, Cormac? Or the devil, even, whatever. I can, I can't see you, but you can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> Thank you. You yeah. can't, you can't say that with a straight face. Comic books don't even use Comic Sans. Of course not. No. They have taste. (laughs) Yeah, so there's a great McSweeney's article on Comic Sans. you got to look it up. We'll we'll put it in the show notes. I read that. That It's uh, first person straight from the mind of Comic Sans. It's it's a well-written article. Probably one of their most popular. Okay, so what fonts do you use, Neil? Um, Should you use? Sorry. You know, all right, so i got to go back. I mean, years ago, what... What do you name your hand lettering, Neil? (laughs) Well, when we were stone carving... No, we... I mean, come on, guys. We we, we all started, (laughs) except for maybe Evan. You know, we... we, In college, right? I mean, I want to hear from the listeners out there that had to when they were just starting out in college. Thank you. Well, I'm sure you do. But did... When you went to Cal Poly Pomona, did they make you sit down and hand letter an entire eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper? No, I did that in high school. Oh, eight right. and a half by eleven. Oh, huge sheets. Shoot. No, but I mean, it. You never did. I. I. Well, actually, I think I might have posted. Didn't I post? I may not have posted. You posted uh, a drawing of a car or something. No, but I, I posted a um, a plate from like seventh oh, yeah. or eighth grade where we did like the whole sheet in lettering, uh, but that was more mechanical lettering back then, and and then. In college, you know, they made us practice the architectural style lettering, and then you kind of, um, you know, could add your own uh, uh, taste or, or flair to it uh, eventually. But so when we first started doing computer drawings, I mean, everybody had to have some sort of hand lettered looking font, right? Yeah. And and that's kind of what we uh, we all used. But I think nowadays, I mean, every it's all over the board. Um, it, there's you use a lot of uh, sans serif fonts um, in, in your in drawings, and then you, people like to use the the hand more hand lettered looking um, fonts. I like uh, when you get all technical. What did I drop? Sans sans <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. All right, real quick though, what do your drawings have right I, now? Right, when you, you open up your drawings. You already know what, what they do have. you. I already know what I have. You know what they all have. Exactly. The default font that comes in Revit say, or AutoCAD. Say it, Neil. I want to hear you say it. What font? He doesn't know. What's the default font? Like AutoCAD default font? I have no idea. What is that? Simplex or something? 
I don't know what it is. Actually, the de- the default straight out of uh, Revit? Uh-huh. Ariel. Oh, yes. God, I Ariel. hate that. Ugh. Ariel, Ariel is the cheapest Microsoft ripoff of yes, Microsoft's ripoff of Helvetica. But it's everywhere. It's prolific. Oh, I hate it's that everywhere. Fun. Not a, not anywhere on my machine. It's just people who it. don't care, or people that don't know, right? So in my drawings, uh, years ago, back in the I don't know about about early nineties, uh, about maybe nineteen ninety or so, Adobe came out with a product called. Um, it was an Adobe Type Manager or something like yeah, that. ATM. Huh. Yeah, yeah, ATM. And so, uh, you know, they came out with Adobe Type Manager that allowed you to have you know more fonts on your machine, and and uh, um, they created a font based on Frank Ching's uh, hand lettering. They called it Tecton. Yep. And yeah. I just I bought it. I mean, I literally bought that font way back in you know 1990 or something because I thought it was just the bomb. So. Uh, <laughs> That's what I used. And you just so dated I, yourself twice, and that's... I was going to say... <laughs> it is the first words he ever typed were, hey, the bomb. Hey, you know what, guys? You guys give me shit about this all the time. So, you know, I, I don't care anymore. It's like, whatever. I'll date myself. But, uh, you know, there's enough... Listen- me. Hey, I need to hear... I need I need some, some help from our listeners here. Come on. I, I know I'm not the only guy There's a lot of people that, who still you know, use the hand-lettered font, but I don't think they use Tecton anymore. I can't remember the name of it, but I, I've seen it in quite a few uh, details and stuff that people are posting on uh, Instagram. and Uh-huh. What is that font? I can't remember the name, but we used it to looks use it like in shit. MicroStation. We used to use it... It's horrible. In, I don't know uh, what that font is, but it looks like crap. It's, it's like this most elongated goofy ass looking font I, I don't like it at all i think it's better than tecton though i don't i, I disagree Te- i tecton think is too thin too thin yeah you think so all i right. think it is i think the line weights are too thin okay and i think the letters are too 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 skinny i don't know how to say it but right right they're too uh, condensed too condensed uh, yeah fair I mean, enough i mean that's certainly well uh, unless you, know. you do it in lowercase and it's like because uh, i've seen that and it looks good but i don't like it in uppercase mm-hmm I, I do. I'm a little nerdy. I here. like it. Um, although when I started my own firm, I used um, Tecton for most of my text, and then for like my title text, uh, I used uh, a different font. Uh, um, I think it's Myriad or something like that. It's an Adobe-based uh, font uh, or Adobe-created font, and it's just—it's actually the one that Apple uses a lot. Um, they used to. Yeah, well, I think they still do actually for a lot of their um, for some of their typesetting. They still they still use that one, and I like that one kind of in bold for my title text, and then below that, or you know, for my notes and everything, I use Tecton. Uh, but I've actually switched up. I I did I started that way, and then for a few projects, I actually changed and used all sans serif fonts, um, and I used um, uh, gosh, I, I've I'll look it up here, but uh, um, I used a couple of other fonts, but everything was sans serif, no architectural font at all. And um, I don't know, to me, it looked a little impersonal. So I, I went back to using the, the Tecton font for the, for the main text. For the like more on, personal on di- touch. Yeah. Well, from, you know, for dimensioning and stuff <laughs> like that. But, but most of like all my title block stuff is all done uh, with me. How does Neil say, I love you in Tecton font? <laughs> All right, smart ass. What do you use? <laughs> oh, unless you real, real quick with the whole Arial thing. You know why everybody uses it is because it is a pain in the butt to go through and change out every Revit family 
Yeah. Uh, to update that, it's in the section marker heads, it's in the elevation marker it's heads, in it's in the room names, so. it's everywhere, right? And so I did that once. I went through every single thing and created a template where I switched them all out. And it didn't live long because uh, I had deleted, stripped a bunch of stuff out of the template that, that we didn't need at the time. And then people started to add things back in. And eventually they just ditched the template and went back to another one. But that, that's a lot of work. And that's why. Because they make it so difficult. It's not like just a global setting. Because all these things live in individual families and in different places in the folders of the of the family folders and stuff. And so it's just it's t- so much work to go through and do it. So I think most people just leave it. Do you know what the default font for master spec is? Ariel. That was my guess. <laughs> when you create your documents, both specs and drawings, they're consistent. Yeah. I mean, it. How does master spec say? I it is you. absolutely unimaginative. Sure, but can you read it? Absolutely. Do people read it when they say? I didn't see that you had all Do of these threshold, it, you mean? these threshold covers and I'm going to put submit a change order and I have to point out where it was in the specs. No, but you know, that's <laughs> a different readable. story altogether. <laughs> yeah. Those are two different questions. Is it readable? And did they read it? <laughs> exactly. Well, my, my latest font that we're using is uh Avenir. I like Avenir a lot. Very readable, Avenir. very modern, clean. Avenir. Um, now, now what is my, personal one yeah what's your personal one neutra font i like neutra too that's a good one i absolutely love that i've seen it around quite a bit lately and i think that's when i always take a cue like oh time to move on but i've seen it on billboards yeah. i've seen it on commercials i start to see it in different places and i think oh okay time for something new but it is a beautiful it beautiful is. typeface it is. who did that one the foundry or was that uh I can't remember. But yeah, there's some good uh, font houses out there, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So Avenir is our latest, and then, I mean, we do a ton of stuff in Helvetica because it's it's timeless. I mean, there's a documentary. Oh, yeah. You have to use oh, it. Oh, yeah. I absolutely love that documentary. It's fantastic. Oh, the Helvetica We need to put one? a link. Yeah. yeah. We, need to put a, we need to put a link to that. that Gary Huswitz a... uh, Helvetica. Yeah. And then if you watch... Um, I can't remember the name of it, but the uh, the documentary on Massimo Vignelli... I mean, he used it for the New York subway maps, and he just he talks about like the three fonts he uses, like Helvetica, Optima, and there's like one more. Can't remember. I think it was just Palatino. Ariel. No, no, <laughs> he uses a a serif font. I think it's a Palatino. But he's like, those are the only fonts you ever need. That's it. Yeah, but here's the problem. Okay, so for the for the listeners who are PC bound, and my day to day operations are PC bound. My- my condolences um, to you. You don't have Helvetica. You have to buy Helvetica. Well, yeah, yeah. you and have to no, buy it. And no, but no office. But there are I've ever worked so for. Goddamn cheap. They won't. Ex- exactly. <laughs> so you're stuck with the courier or Ariel. I hear you. Uh, and and I'm just saying. I mean, that's why you know people default. I mean, we had this conversation last week with Mark about the cost of all the different softwares and stuff like that. So you think they're going to go out and spend another hundred bucks for, for a font? Look, and if then, you want your drawings and, to look good, and if you care about your drawings, I you will buy a font. <laughs> I understand. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. People, people but, rail on the graphic qualities. This is part of that. Well, when I was, when I was solo, we went out, we bought Helvetica 
because that's what we wanted. Plus, you know, we were bouncing back and forth between Mac and PCs that we just wanted a consistent look across the board. We went out and we bought Helvetica. Good on you. Yeah. So listeners, what, what fonts do you use on your, uh, on your drawings? Let us know. We're, we're curious. Um, and don't forget, you can always call uh, our, our hotline, 415-488. Shut up, man. I'm giving out the, <laughs> giving out the phone number here. 415-484-8496. Give us a call. Let us know what your favorite font typeface is. Shouldn't say font. It's a really typeface. Sort of typeface do you and like just, to use? And just reminisce hey, for a moment. Hey, Grandpa, it's font now. All right. You're going to get hate mail for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, you are Cormac, not me. Male Cormac. Male Cormac. Cormac at arcaspeakpodcast.com. Find me in the um, in, in your the, computer in tree where the typeface folder is. <laughs> I bet you find it in the font folder. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. You got me on that one. That's true. One last thing on fonts. One last thing. Remember the days. I mean, maybe you still do this, but I remember getting on that Mac Classic and just hitting the font menu in Mac Right and looking at all the oh, fonts. Yeah. And that was just that was just like magic back oh, in the yeah. day. That was fun. That was well, cool you, stuff. You know, uh, the, the the new the new default font coming up this fall on your ios devices or your macs if you upgrade upgrade is san francisco and uh actually i i'll look it up here um the on the original macintosh uh operating system the san francisco font looked very different from the one that's coming this this fall it's not good but (laughs) but okay so if they could do that back then how come there are programs that we use that can't do that now I want to pull down that font menu and I want to see what they look like. Uh-huh. Why is this so difficult? Like I can't remember what they all look like. I'm, I'm forty years old. Come That's on. what font book is for. Yeah, Just, I guess. You know, yeah. Pop open yeah. font book and and you're good to go. All right, let's 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 take all it right. on to the next topic. So telegraph we, us the next one, Neil. All right, where are we going next? Here, I got to look at the list. Okay. Um, okay. So consultants. We, Consultants, yeah. We, we've had a couple of people uh, send us notes in the past about this one, but uh, one of one, one of the first of which, there's, there's kind of a two-parter here, um, was the comment was, it, why is it impossibly hard to find consulting engineers that give enough of a crap to do their job well, do it on time, and be a team player? What's up with that? Well, <laughs> uh, I don't think, I think that that's a pretty isolated incident, don't you think? I've you know sometimes it's, it's it's hit or miss, you know, and and you know this as well as I do, Evan. That when we're going after a public works, public school type project, and we've got to be a low bid, and we've got to nickel and dime everybody that is working under us. That sometimes, just like in construction, when you're the low bid, <laughs> you get what you pay for. So yeah, if you're the low bid, you get the job, and then we get to do your work for you. Yeah, that's what you're it's saying. Just, uh, you know, I don't have those meetings in right now. Uh, in in my you know, and so wh- how am I supposed to uh, you know? I, I've got to just give you additional services for that. Like, how are you supposed to build something if you never attend a meeting to find out exactly what you're building or designing? Yeah, I agree. I've, I've, I've honestly had that conversation before. It's frustrating, and I think that there are different. Obviously, this this leading question here is that. Uh, 
there are different levels of consultants out there, right? There yeah. are there yeah. are bottom scrapers. There are, I think it is, you get what you pay for. Because there are there are lots of consultants out there who will do an amazing job and they don't take a low fee to do it, right? But you get right. what you pay right. for it. You Here's the things that you want in a in a consultant. You want someone who adds value to the project. You want someone who comes in with fresh ideas and is throwing out and brainstorming and coming up with solutions that you never expected. And you want to have that back and forth riffing going on with your consultants because it's going to make the project better. But there's so many times when we pick a consultant because of their low fee, we end up doing their work for them. They don't add any value. Yeah. And and it's it's here, here's well, the thing. Like, I don't get to choose the consultants that I get to work with, right? Somebody right. else in the firm, right. in these larger firms, gets to pick who that is. And that's usually based on some old buddy-buddy relationship. And they're picking them because of the martinis that they buy them. Mm-hmm. And so the person who gets stuck with that consultant and has to work with them for months or years um, and actually go through the painful process of doing that uh, is not the one who's getting taken out to the martini bar. So yeah. yeah, there needs to be a lot more communication within the teams, within the firms to say, you know what, how do we vet which consultants are good and which ones are bad? And then you you have to kind of come up with a rating system, I think, in your office so that you can actually start picking consultants that do add value and bring something to the table. Otherwise, it's it's painful, right? And it's not painful it for is. that principal, but it's painful for the people, the project manager and the people who are working on the project. You know, and a lot of things, a lot of times, and it doesn't seem to happen as often as it should, but at the end of every project, there should be a team meeting with at least just the project architects, project manager, and the principal, you know, so that you can talk about and evaluate the performance of the consultants on the team and let them know what was good and bad and different, you know, and then next time another project comes around, you really kind of take that to heart and think about, well, you know, I mean, they were really difficult on this project or they were, you know, they shined and really be honest, be honest and add some value to the project the next time around or just you're one and done. Right. Because, you know, I mean, we're really looking for a collaborative partner in design, not just, I don't want just an engineer who's going to basically make what, you know, okay, we want to do this. All right. I'll figure out a way to make it work. No, I want you to come in and talk to me about the merits of this idea, that idea, your idea, everybody's idea, and work as part of a team. I mean, some of the best projects I've ever worked on, the engineers are not just an engineer, but they're a designer as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I, I love it when you have an idea and it gets your consultant. You know, I, I think this works really well with structural engineers. Yeah. There's some that I've worked with that are just like, they get so excited when you talk them through something and then they think, I can I can make that even better, right? And they come back with something. And then there's the other ones that totally drag down by being ultra conservative. I mean, in California, with, with all the, the lateral stuff that we have to deal with, mm-hmm. it's very easy for them to rely on being super conservative, especially yeah. in, in public work where we're dealing with the state architect who has their their own structural interpretation of the code, um, which is super conservative already. And they just want to comply to make, to kind of grease that process, right. To make it as easy as possible. Once, once it goes into plan check, but yeah. 
But when a structural engineer comes with, they get excited about the project and they have different ideas and you're having like a design charrette with a structural engineer and you're going back and forth. That is a really cool process to go through. Um, and I've worked with engineers like that who have been taken off of our projects because they are spending too much time on it. <laughs> so their principal yeah. will take them off the project and they'll stick somebody else on who, uh, who, who just doesn't communicate well who doesn't respond, doesn't return emails, and, and now all of a sudden the project is suffering because of it. Yeah. So it's it's too bad, but I see it all, all the time. You know, I have to agree with you guys. I, I just recently actually had um, this experience. Since I've been on my own, I've, I've kind of worked with some uh, past consultants that I've worked with uh, on in, in prior firms. And um, so speaking strictly of... Um, you know, just, just, uh, structural right now. Um, I've worked with this one gentleman uh, over a number of years and he's really good. He calls me, he asks a lot of questions and I kind of feel like he's part of the team, right? Um, he's always like, Hey, how is this going to work? Or how's, you know, I have a suggestion for this and it, it works out really well in that when I do get his final drawings, um, they're, they're pretty well coordinated already with mine because we've kind of uh, worked through the process, uh, throughout. Um, and he also charges more. And so recently I've, I've had a couple other newer projects and, uh, uh, one, the structural engineer was chosen by somebody else and I had to use that structural engineer. Nice guy does, um, an adequate job. But again, going back to what you guys were just saying, uh, the low ball, the price, what, you know, you, what you get. And, um, this, this experience was horrible. Um, there were mistakes, things that I would get back, you know, he'd send me like these preliminary drawings and I'd be like, uh, is that it? Is this, is this all you're doing? Um, <laughs> for, first off, um, and, and then I'm like, well, what about this? And what about that? It's like, almost like he sent me a couple of days before our deadline. He sends, well, here's my final drawings. I'm like, well, uh, you realize that, you know, there's no access in this, uh, you know, underfloor access space. Um, what about putting the additional heel height on, um, you know, this part of the roof where we have to bump up the heel height to make everything flush out. And, and, you know, actually his response to me was, well, that goes on the architecture drawings. I'm like, really? Well, I have a feeling the truss manufacturer is not even going to look at my drawings when yeah. he goes to build the trusses. He's going to look at your drawings. And when he doesn't see the note on your drawings, guess who's going to be marking up the shop drawings because they're going to be wrong. And that's only if I get a chance to see the shop drawings. Most likely they'll build the damn things and then send them out to the job site. And I'll be like, uh, yeah, this is wrong. Send them back and then rebuild them the way, you know, they're supposed to. But again, it's like you get what you pay for. And, yep. um, you know, anyway, it just, it's a bad experience and you want to, I'm sure the guy cares, but he does what he does for a certain price. And that's the level of service you're going to get. Right. And, you yeah, know, none of that it's explained up front. Oh, God, no, no. Right. Because um, that will mean that you won't get the job. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, when I present uh, many of my clients, I, I give them options. Um, here's a few different in structural engineers. And oftentimes um, they're usually kind of uh, the, the, the two that I've used in the past are all usually about the same price, plus or minus a little bit. Um, but this guy's coming in way lower. And so I've had another client like, oh, we want to go with him, this guy, he, he's cheap. 
And I'm yep. just like, oh, no, don't do that. I mean, I, they're, I'm sure their house isn't going to fall down. It's not going to cause, uh, uh, you know, any any major issues, most likely, with their project. And, hey, they're going to get it for five-eighths of the price. Well, not quite half, but, uh, you know, so they're going to save some money. Well, I mean, that's good, but it's going to cause me some more grief. That's for sure. Yeah, I want an engineer who can think. Right. I want it, whether it's mechanical or structural, I want somebody who can visualize in 3D or at least open the 3D model and look in it and cut some sections and figure it out. What I f- often find is that usually those are the junior engineers who are running the Revit models. Uh, yeah. And and it's the older engineers who don't know how to do that. And they're thinking of everything in single line. And and so therefore... I'm having to cut sections and send screenshots and say, run your duct here, right? Because oh, this is where yeah. the space is. But I shouldn't have to do that. Mechanical is oh, the worst. You know, my They're favorite. Well, uh, I don't know. I've got a, I've, <laughs> I have a bone to pick with civil engineers. But There's always that's a worse story. <laughs> but um, no, actually, one of my favorite and probably most memorable points of a project was when I was working on the that historic project where, you know, I've got two different elevations of two different buildings and I'm connecting between the two. And, you know, we're running our uh, main mechanical um, boiler room and everything else are over in one building and we're running it through that building, through the addition, into the other building. So you're coming in at all these different elevations. So we're bringing them across the, you know, carrying them tight to the structure of the um, connecting building into the next building it's coming through the wall at like seven foot something and it's like okay well clearly that's going to be below ceiling what do you need to do with it what was great about it was is that you know we sat there and we brainstormed and we all came up with an idea of you know basically kind of creating this interesting little um almost like a a recess wall with a um, a low soffit line and it it ended up being where we put a lot of casework and it looked really cool, and but because of this, you know, this low ceiling line that was at seven four, you know, the head height lined up perfectly with you know the the head of the door and everything else, so we kind of could carry that line straight through the room. But right, you know, right at that line was the uh, ductwork coming through, and we're talking about big, massive, you know, uh, trunk lines, and. But it was because he cut a section. He was like, well, you know, you've got, you know, we had the mecha- uh, structural, mechanical, and architectural models all merged together. And it was the first time that we actually finally used uh, Revit successfully to actually see all of the problems that we had in this project. Well, it only works if everybody's doing it. That is true. And there's so many times where the, uh, and, I, and, I don't, and, and I don't get this. I, I don't know if you've ever had this argument made where, well, our our fees only include AutoCAD drugs, yes. not Revit. Yes. What? Not How? anymore, but I've heard that, you know, in the last few years, I've heard that many times. Yeah. Well, I've I've had it as far back as a month ago. We as far, still... far back as a month ago. Exactly. Jeez. Yeah, well, it is cheaper, right? Yeah. It is cheaper, but, you know, I mean, now if you've got cloud subscriptions, they're pretty much the same or pretty close. Well, you know, one of the things I I used to do uh, when I worked in production housing uh, that I found um, 
worked well. And this, this goes back, you know, maybe 10 years now, but, uh, uh, so we didn't have Revit models to do any of that sort of thing. And, and quite honestly, the people building uh, or working on these production houses weren't going to be building Revit models of their of the projects. But um, I, I could be wrong about that, but certainly not 10 years ago, they weren't. But so one of the successful things that I was able to do is probably what you're doing now, Cormac, by meshing these models together. Um, but back then... What I found, and I still think this would be useful for anyone out there uh, listening, is get everybody in the same room. So I, I when I would run jobs for um, for builders, uh, the couple of builders I worked with, I would bring the architect in, I'd bring the structural engineer, mechanical, um, the con- the our construction crew, uh, our construction manager guy in, and I'd put everybody in the same room. With the preliminary set of drawings, say, you know, 30% done construction drawings or something, uh, or maybe even prior to that, right? So kind of late stage design development, um, early construction drawings, and we'd all get in the room. They've all had a chance to look at them, and it's like, okay, mechanical, where you're running your stuff? You know, structural, is that a problem? Oh, you've got a beam there. Okay, how do we either engineer that beam out of this place, or we change the ducting? And, and then the construction guys are there. So they're like, okay, yep, this, this will work. I can do that. Uh, the engineer and you get everybody on the same page. And what I found was that at least when we were doing production housing, you do that one meeting. Yeah. You're probably in there three or four hours or something. You buy everybody lunch or whatever, but that, that investment of time and effort early in the construction drawing process solved so many problems. Once you got out to the field. Because I've been involved in so many projects where none of that happens, right? The developer is not out in front of the project because they don't have an architectural manager or um, an architect working for them. It's just like, hey, get our drawings done. Get them into the city. Get them approved. Let's start building, right? And then they go, oh, we'll solve it later. We'll solve it later. You get out into the field and it's built. It's like, okay, yeah, now we're on a framework. Oh, yeah, rip this beam out. Change this you know, run this, this isn't going to work. That shit costs money. I mean, and time and effort and delays in the project. It's like, really? I could have solved all of this months ago by one half day meeting. And it works. So anybody listening here, if you are in that position or, you know, if you've had these problems, use like Cormac said, I mean, you know, whether you're using, if you're using Revit and your team is using Revit, the uh, mechanical structurals, you know, get them all in the same room, look at that model, solve all those problems up ahead, because that's what saves money down the line. And time. And time. Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah. whether you're do using Revit or if you're kind of more old fashioned and just using basic CAD or some other sort of BIM. Put all of those different people, the mechanical uh, people, the contractors, the structural, all of these uh, consultants and people involved, put them all in the same room and and you'll be surprised um, how much that solves so many problems. Um, And it, and it really can work. So, I mean, there's, that's my tip uh, for this episode. If you do that, uh, or if you can, so if, if you're the architect on the project, make the suggestion to the client, uh, the developer, the builder, whoever it might be, um, to do that and force it to happen because it will save your, you know, a lot of pain and suffering later on. Yeah. And I think now you can do that with clash detection, get everybody in the room oh, and yeah. go through the yeah. clashes and, or, or, or just kind of order your consultants 
uh, in priority and have have structural come in and then have mechanical come in and uh, you know they don't all have to be there the whole day they can come in one after another and do that but it works really well for that kind of thing and what I found now is that there's there's one job that we did that finished a few years ago where the contractor built an entire BIM model based on our printed set of plans wow they went back and built the whole thing they did all the disciplines so that they could do all that clash detection themselves because mm-hmm. they they obviously didn't trust what we had and and now i've heard it where they're taking our model and maybe maybe not structural model and then going in and doing it all themselves usually now the the steel fabricator is going to build their own anyway because they're going to produce their shop drawings from it but they'll sure. use the architect the architect's model uh as their base but then the contractor will also then take take our model, take that structural model, and then build all their own everything else so that they can eliminate all the clashes themselves. Let me uh, take a, a side road here real fast about that. So here you have been spending, let's just say a year. Let me be conservative and say you've spent a year developing all of your construction documents. Now it's off to construction. And the contractor asks for your CAD or your uh, BIM model or whatever so that he can produce his shop drawings and everything off of that. How do you guys feel about that? Or or what, or what or how do you guys deal with it? Honestly, like, I want to just give them, I want them to build off the model. <laughs> I don't, I'd rather do that than, than do all these drawings. Well, I, I but we're not there yet. And you, we've you, we've talked about this before. You know, until we get to the point where we're building off of the model, um, we still produce all of these two D documents for them to build off of, and that's technically what they build, bid the uh, job off of, and should be building off of. And yes, we all know that it is a hell of a lot easier for them to take all of these bid models and be able to generate their above ceiling coordination documents, all of their steel shop drawings, everything, you know, off of all of this, you know, all of these different documents. It's a lot easier for them to do that. But there's this argument that, you know, well, you want this stuff, you got to pay us for it because, you know, we spent tens of thousands of dollars of man hours uh, developing all of these documents, and now you just want them for free. Let, let's 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 get into that. Let, no, let, let's talk about it for a minute. Let's do a, a sponsor break real quick, and then and then we'll pick right back up right there. All right. So let let's talk about RCAT. And everybody who listens to the show already knows about RCAT, and that is a good thing because RCAT.com is our friend. Would you like someone to draw CAD details for you, create BIM objects for you, write specifications for you? Would you like this someone to do it for free? RCAT has already done all of this. Search the RCAT libraries for these products and more, free of charge, no registration required to download content. RCAT has created a website devoted to you, the building professional, to find building product information fast and hassle-free. Check out RCAT today at RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. And just a quick little story here. I mean, maybe you guys can add to this or not, but... uh. There are manufacturers out there who, instead of just letting you download your content right from their site, they now, you click on the product and it goes over to RCAT's website. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah. So I think that that is a sign of the times. Um, RCAT is becoming and, and is this 
repository for all of these manufacturers in one place. You don't even have to go out to the manufacturer websites unless you want to look at the pretty pictures. Um, if you want to download their product information, their Revit models, their families, their any any kind of IFC models, if you want to download PDFs of their specifications, their uh, product sheets, you can get yeah. all of that right on rcat.com. So yeah, very, well, very cool. Yeah, the great thing about it is, okay, so you go in there and you want... I want to look up thresholds. Let's just yeah, let's pick the uh, most uh, invigorating of of conversation <laughs> topics there. Thresholds, and, and so you go in and you find the a family or a detail or a, or whatever you get. You can have the um, CAD model or the the Revit model. Um, you can get the specifications. You can get the cut sheet. You can be able to provide the owner or, you know, the owner's rep a cut sheet of what you're looking for and what you want to use. So, I mean, you've got all of the different materials that you would be using to document it, to specify it, to, you know, have a visual approval. And hell, I mean, even a lot of the stuff that I see on RCAT are things that I'm getting as submittals to review because there's all the documents right there for them to you know, be able to look at product data and, you know, uh, testing performances and, and all of this other stuff. So, uh, I mean, it is a well-rounded tool for you to be able to look at almost every type of documentation um, thing that you would be doing for every little bit and piece of your building. Yep. So thank you, RCAT, and everybody go check thank out you. com and search for your building products there you will most likely find everything that you need and more so thanks rcat for sponsoring arc speak podcast including thresholds <laughs> i like that invigorating <laughs> all right so back to, back to what you were saying about basically giving away our ip to get the project built and i think it depends on the scale of the project there are definitely types of projects where it doesn't make sense to give away that information because they could be replicated very easily, right? In this digital yeah. age. Um, I, I don't see that happening in the type of work that, that we're doing because it's so specific, so large. I mean, it's not like you're going to find another 116,000 square foot math and science building on another campus that looks exactly like the one that I'm working on because, because somebody oh, used that information, but uh I'm using it right now because you, you, you post so many images that I've yeah. been presenting it to our clients here. <laughs> yeah. No. And it works no, perfectly. Well, but I mean, so, really that, I think that ship has sailed but at least in our part. Evan, of the how well, different, let, let me th how different is this guys from uh, a few years back when we were asked to pass off drawings to the structural engineers so they could use them as their base? Well, I, yeah, I, right? well, that see, that's, I mean, know, we were, but that, that, that's, that was a, that's, that was a serious question. Should we be giving up our IP, our hard work to enter all these floor plans back, you know, essentially that we're going to hand over to the, uh, the engineer, the structural engineer so that he can draw over the top of well, them. Well, see, that's different because here you're working different? with, let me explain. Okay. Because here you're working as part of your your consulting, your design team okay. is your structural engineer, your MEP, your civil engineer, and all of these other you know specialty engineers and stuff. 
they're basically helping you, you know, if we use the old human body analogy, we're creating the skin and everything else. They're creating this, the bones and, you know, MEPs creating this, the um, distribution system and everything else. So all of this stuff needs to be integrated and coordinated back and forth between each other. So, yeah, you should be giving it to them. And if you think about it, the, that argument translates onto the contractor because the contractor is the one responsible to build all of that stuff. But there's a, there is a, and, and so I'm, I'm of two minds here where the reason I don't like giving contractors the, um, the digital set of things, because every time I turn around, when I get a submittal, it's my drawings, and they're asking me to approve my drawings. And that like, should be easy for you then, right? Well, yeah, I, that's perfect. Uh, Looks good to me. Yes, Stand. but Done. then here's the thing is, did they really look at the drawings or did they just turn my reflected ceiling plan around and say, here is your um You mean did your they figure it out for you? <laughs> well, if it's if it's a design build delivery system, you know, then then honestly, they should have as much input in the review of the documents as as any other part of the project team. But if you're doing just a you know a um, a, deli- a bid delivery system where they you know you you get all the different contractors bidding after it and all that other stuff, and they're submitting your drawings back to you, they're my worry is, are you really looking at the drawings? Do you really know what you're building? I mean, we're okay, putting you know in the answer a, to that. I know. The answer is no. And you answered your original question in your answer also, where you said, when you give it to them, because you don't right. say no, and you always give it to them. Well, I mean, we actually charge. Do you? <laughs> we do. We actually, we, we don't give them the full model. We give them base drawings. We, we charge them an administration fee for um, basically stripping down the the CAD. We only give CAD files. We do not give uh, um, Revit files. It's not going to be long until you do that. It, you know, and it's not. I mean, here's here's the thing. There was a – we did a hundred – let's just call it a $100 million um, high school renovation project. Major additions, you know, complete gutting of the system, new systemics, the whole thing. And we worked with the construction manager and um, they built a Revit model based off of our Revit model. I mean, we provided them a Revit model and they built, you know, because we didn't have a full, fully integrated um, team where mechanical and structural and everybody else was fully um, doing full Revit. They were doing kind of, you know, mocking up and, and doing a few things, but... So they built a full model that did clash detections and all of this other stuff. And they worked out all of the problems that, in essence, we should have been or were working out. Um, And it made it go a lot smoother. It goes back to what you were saying, Neil, about, you know, if we would have worked it out ahead of time, if we would have sat there and built that model, then we would have been able to save time and energy and effort during the construction process. And so it worked out great. It was, uh, I'm not going to say it went smooth because it was a, you know, it was a project in itself um, just to do that. But, you know, that's, 
I, I'm hoping, you know, uh, being the eternal optimist here, I'm hoping that that's where our, the profession is going, where we'll be able to build off of the model, where we'll be able to integrate the contractor the and all of the consultants and everybody else into the process so we're going to have better buildings we'll be able to integrate the um the manufacturers of all of the different systems into the project well that's the the i and bim right and and not enough architects i think you use it exactly and i can't fully generalize that but no you're right though there because there are some that do but that is where the information part comes in that is the smartness of it that not enough people utilize yeah, and again, remember, as that becomes tool. more and more uh, useful, right, for cost estimating, yeah. for, for CMs, for everybody, to have that information embedded in there, then that transition can happen. But until yeah. then, I mean, yeah. and, and right now, um, the, the mantra seems to be, um, you know, less is more. The, the less <laughs> we can do, the better, because of all of these other things that are happening, right? You want to you minimize your amount of of input that you're putting in so that you can, but, but it does, it comes back and bites you. Let me give you a less is more kind of example today. So I was looking in, yes, I'm going to be harping on this threshold thing for, so <laughs> basically us. in our hard, hardwood flooring spec for the gym floor, we cover all of the thresholds for the transitions between the hardwood floor and any other dissimilar uh, flooring material. We cover it there. We specify what type of uh, um, transition uh, thresholds and everything else that we want. They completely missed it. So I get an RFI, and I I went and I was kind of standing at this, uh, or we've got this cutting table in the middle of the thing. It's just a place for people to like, kind of like lay stuff out, and you can stand up. Um, so I was I was reviewing the specs to make sure it was in there. And one of the interns comes, wow, that's, you know, that's a lot of information that you need to. And I'm like, sure. Um, and they're like, do we have, do you write that much stuff on a, for every project? And I was just like, hold on, this is volume one of three. And every one of them is more than a ream of paper, double-sided, you know, so you've got this stack. It's, uh, it's probably a good foot in, you know, like maybe 14 inches tall of paper. And that's just the specs. And then yep. you've got like the two volumes of drawings that are like 300 sheets itself. And God, I wish less was more. I was like, right. you know, they used to build cathedrals with eight sheets. Right. And here we have <laughs> thousands of sheets. And, I was, and I'm trying to explain to them. I'm like, look, the drawings are just the drawings and the specs are the specs. But together, that's the contract documents. You know, that, you know, several other things, obviously. But, you know, and so you do, you can't just have one. You have to have all of this stuff. Yeah, less is less would be greatly more. You If you had it in the model and it was tagged properly and everything else, and you build it off the right family, and you click on that family and it's got all of the technical information on there, that's where we should be. Yeah. Not where we are now. That'd be great. I think we need to wake Cormac up. He's living in fantasy land. <laughs> no, no, we're not. It's there. It's you're, you're out on Fantasy Island. <laughs> well, and this is not the day. It is the, the I. The right. plane. It is the I. The plane. <laughs> it is the I in BIM. We used to be able to rely on contractors to figure some of this stuff out. And oh, now we have no. to think for them. Yeah. You can't do that. Right. Well, so so we're thinking for the consultants and the contractors now. 
Yeah. And we get paid less to do it. Yeah, we still don't. I was going to say, exactly, thanks. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> I want to come back eventually to the topic of we're doing all of this work and uh, and and having to and doing it up front to save money down the road. But I, I want to address later on, and we'll we come to this in another episode of getting paid to do all that work up front because it seems like they don't want to pay for it up front. It's like go go go, let's get it built, and then they end up paying for it at the end because well, here, of all the here, errors. But so we can't leave this topic quite yet because. We're still in the billing mode of X amount of dollars for SD, X amount of dollars for um, DD, and then a whole boatload of dollars goes into CDs. But yet the new BIM, you know, the way that we do BIM now, we're doing so much work up front, but we're not getting paid for it. Because, I mean, you know, ultimately at the end of the, the project, you know, you see all well, of this. you'll make thing, it up, right? Yeah. You'll make it up. But that's not, you know, because, but the problem is, is that the time is short for right. SD and DD. And the new, and BIM needs to reverse that where yeah. we're top heavy in time up front. And really, if you do all, if you work it all out up front, the, Development of the construction documents should really be a lot shorter than it is. But the problem is, is that we're still we're trying to hybridize this delivery method of BIM versus the traditional way of doing it, where we're spending a lot of time up front doing the BIM, but we're still, con- I mean, BIM the modeling, you know, and we're doing all of the modeling up front, but it's also straddling into CDs and. We need to change that model where we're spending more time in SD and DD, and literally we're done with the modeling at the end of DD, and we're just making the documents. Yeah, I mean, just to give you an example, I was reading through a list of deliverables for schematic design today because we're wrapping up a schematic design on our project. And for uh, 3D imagery, it just says conceptual imagery that shows the basic and it's it's so super vague right the basic conceptual massing of what the architecture might look like (laughs) and and what we're what are we turning in we're turning in almost full-blown renderings that show exactly what it's going to look like i mean in reality they want that photo real yeah. You know, with people and everything else. Or, hey, if you could, you know, Evan, why don't you go ahead and kick in an animation, too? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that was part of it. That, uh-huh. is, that is it. Yeah. See? And and the funny thing is, is like when you are building these BIM models and you are you are doing that heavy lifting up front, it forces you to make a lot of decisions. Right. And so in the we are heavily loading our initial meetings and trying to get the clients to make lots of decisions early. Because that means we can go even faster, right? If we have approvals to do these things, mm-hmm. then we can do so much more, which ultimately is good for us and is good for the project. But we're well, working sure. at a pace that is pretty killer. And then also um, that that payment model doesn't fit with that. You're exactly, exactly. right. You're doing that all that work up front, but you're not going to get paid for it for a while. <laughs> right. You and, know. So, and so you seem like you're over budget for the first half of the project. And right. then, uh, and, and everybody's yelling at you to go faster and do it, do it in less time. And then you get to the, the back end of the project and, uh, people are slowing down and taking their time and cruising because they know that 
that uh, they've got all a, a lot of extra time because a lot so much was figured out already. So, oh, I we we had a build a billing meeting one time and we were looking at one of my projects and we were over budget on SD and we were over budget on DD and we were way under budget on CDs. And uh, you know they're talking about well you know can you justify this and I'm like. The project's in permitting right now. We're good to go. Actually, it was in in a bid, which meant, you know, we were done doing, you know, any drawings and and all that other stuff other than our addendum. But, um, you know, and it was because the way that the model, the way that their billing model is, does not work with the new production model of, you know, using Revit or, you know, any other BIM tool. And, you know, it's just when you, until we can reconcile that and move out of the stone age of doing it the old fashioned way, I mean, there's still going to be firms that are going to be doing that kind of model because that's the way that they deliver their products. That's fine, but we're not doing that right now. Well, I think lots of firms are. So it, it definitely is working. And for some people, it, it, it takes a lot of communication. It takes uh, a lot of people kind of, uh, learning to work in new ways, especially if you're dealing with clients who, who do a lot of projects, right? That those are the ones it's difficult with. If, if oh, you're yeah, yeah. working in residential or if you're working in one-off projects, it's not as big of a deal. It's a lot easier to, to make those convincing arguments because, uh, the evidence is right there. It's in the drawings. But when you get into these established systems, that's where it becomes a lot more difficult because they have procedures and they don't want to change those. Right. So, well, you know, you, I mean, but then, you know, like, we're working for like public school systems and things like that. When they get their funding, you know, they get funding for X amount percentage for SD, X amount of percentage for DD and X amount, which is usually the, the heavier X amount for CDs. And that's the building billing method. And, and so we're almost as we're, we're tied to the way that the, our clients are set up their billing for these projects as well. And until we can stand up and say, look, the way the, you're now demanding a delivery method of BIM and your billing site, you know, your billing method is not BIM anymore. It is the old, the old way of doing things. And we need to start talking about changing that. And so far we're just like, well, we got a job. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have a podcast. That's right. And exactly. if you have questions or comments, visit our website at archispeakpodcast.com. And there you'll find individual links to our Twitter accounts and the Archispeak Podcast Facebook page. So you too can join in on that conversation that we're having. Let us know your favorite fonts. I really want to know this. And also too. Yeah, I'm more interested in the coffee. You're, you want to know about the coffee. So let us know and call the Archispeak Podcast line at 415-484-8496 describe how you like to have your coffee made. And if you haven't already done so, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps get the word out about the show and raises up that ranking on iTunes so that people are aware of it. So we appreciate that. So please do so. And uh, other than that, stay subscribed and thanks for listening. Yeah. And if you need to contact Neil directly, his, uh, his number is dot, dot, dash, dash, dot, 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 dash. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Shut up, Cormac. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Good night, guys. Good night. Have a good night. (laughs) 
Oh, you can bet I know 